Would you please stand with me as we read the Word of God together? I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil. And they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm. And your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge 
and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are infinitely wise. That you are the only wise God. And we, because of our sin, are born as fools. It is folly that is bound in the heart of a child. And you call us to turn away from our native folly and to embrace wisdom. And you call us to do this when we are young. Father, we thank you that it is by your grace that we have come to see ourselves as naturally foolish, in need of your wisdom. We thank you for this very direct call in Proverbs chapter 1 to young people especially to listen to the instruction of wisdom and how biblical wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Father, we pray for our young people. We pray that you will produce within their hearts, O God, the fear of the Lord. We pray that you will deliver them from despising wisdom and instruction. We pray that you would make them wise young men and young women. That they would not be the kind of people who would abandon their parents' teaching or be enticed by the call of sinners. Father, we pray that you would give your saving grace to every young person that is a part of this church family. That you would show tremendous grace to them. That you would deliver them from the evil world system. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He is wisdom from God. And as we come to this time of the year when we think about our dear Savior's birth, we thank you for your infinite wisdom by which you planned his birth by which you planned the entire plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world. We thank you that we are in Christ, where there is no condemnation, where there is full pardon and redemption. We thank you that we have been liberated from our, our sin, that we are no longer under your wrath, but we are now in a state of grace. And that you shower us with grace every day that we live. And that you will never cease to do so. Father, we thank you for the privilege of allowing us to be alive on this Lord's Day. To have the health and the means to gather with your people. And to have your word open before us. I pray that you will enable our minds, O God, 
to put off the cares of this life and to have a singular thought about you and that we would worship you with joy and with gladness and with the fullness of our hearts, with undivided hearts. Thank you for the privilege of being able to give. We thank you for allowing us to be able to offer to you our praises, our worship, our lives. We pray that you will accept our worship. We endeavor to offer it to you with clean hands and a pure heart. And we do it not in our own name, but in the highest name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Now please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. And I want to direct your attention to verses 20 and 21. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, Part 7. With our time together this morning, we will look at verse 20, but I want to read verses 20 and 21 in your hearing. The Apostle Paul writes, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. This is the very word of God. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released new data this past October about the suicide rate in our country, and the news is not good. From 2007 to 2017, the suicide rate in the United States rose 24%. That is a tragedy. But what is even more tragic is that the suicide rate among young people ages 10 to 24 rose 56%. That means over the last 10 years in our nation, the suicide rate among kids has more than doubled. The suicide rate among young adults in their early 20s has more than doubled. That is a tragedy. Dr. Alex Crosby, who is the chief medical officer for the Division of Injury Prevention at the CDC, says there is probably a combination of factors leading to the rise of suicide in our country. He suggests that it's due in part to increasing levels of anger across the country that homes are full of stress as families struggle to make ends meet, that young people are having a very hard time coping with all the fear and stress and anger that they face at home, and also that mental illness, exposure to violence, relationship problems, and child abuse are contributing factors. Do you see anything missing from his analysis? 
he completely leaves out God. And that is indicative of the problem that our country is in. While I don't deny that there are a complexity of factors that contribute to the rise of suicide, such as those suggested by the doctor, the root cause of man's problem, including suicide, is the rejection of God. We live in an increasingly secular age, and the natural outcome of a rise in secularism is a rise in despair and anger and fear and worry. Why? Because life without God is meaningless. It is meaningless. In a culture where God is pushed out of people's thinking and out of their lives, the natural result is despair and anger and anxiety and fear and depression and even suicide. And so the rise in suicide is sad, terribly sad, but it is not surprising. When you believe that you are a cosmic accident, when you believe that there is no absolute truth about moral and spiritual matters, when you believe that God either doesn't exist or that you can't know with certainty that he does exist, when you believe that ultimately nothing matters, when you believe that the world is going to end in about 12 years due to climate change, that is a recipe for despair and anger and fear. And that is how more and more of our young people are living today. And that is a tragedy. And so, young people, I want you to listen to me. This is to all people, but this morning is especially geared to our young people. You are not a cosmic accident. You did not evolve from stardust into a human being. You were made by God. You are the special creation of Almighty God. And you were made by God for a good reason, for a good purpose. God made you for himself. And that gives your life meaning. That gives your life meaning. On your sermon notes, there is a quote from an anonymous author. I've used it before it bears repeating. It says, the two greatest days in a person's life are the day he was born and the day he finds out why he was born. Young people especially, do you know why you were born? You were born to know God. God made you so that you would find your ultimate satisfaction, not in this world, not in sin, not in yourself, but in God himself. God made you so that you would find the fullness of joy in him. God made you to want to be happy, and he made you so that you would find your ultimate happiness in your relationship with him. Last Sunday, we spoke a little bit about Augustine from 
about 1,500 years ago in church history. And there is another quote by him on the sermon notes. It is actually a prayer, and it is one of my favorite statements by Augustine. It goes like this. He is praying to God. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I agree. To that I say, amen. Well, that brings us to our passage in Colossians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 18, Paul addresses specific groups of people within the church, one of which is children, in verse 20. And Paul's address to the children of the church in Colossae falls into two main headings, the first of which we began to look at last time, Roman numeral one on your notes, God's will for children in the first half of the verse. Last week, we really focused only on just one word, the first word in the verse, namely children. We noted that at this point in his letter, Paul is directly speaking to children, to the children of the church in Colossae. And so this verse isn't really about children as much as it is two children, and I find that very compelling. The Apostle Paul is writing to children. We further noted that the age of these children probably began around school age and extended through the teenage years prior to adulthood. So these are not infants, they're not babies, they're not little toddlers. This would include any child that is living in the home and still under parental guidance. So from school age through the end of high school. We also said that there are two things that are presupposed about these children to whom Paul writes which require our careful attention. We looked at the first one last time, letter A in our outline. These children are Christian children. These are children who were genuinely converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were believing children. They were young people whom God had marvelously regenerated. They are young people who had repented of their sins. They are young people who had trusted in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior and Lord, all by the grace of God. That brings us now to where we left off last time and to our second presupposition that we find in this verse about children, letter B. These children are participants in corporate worship. When the church gathered together for the purpose of corporate worship, these children were present. How do we know that? We know that because Paul could not directly address these children if they were not present in the corporate meeting when this letter was read to the church. They were there. They were in the assembly. And why were they there? Because they, like adults, need to participate in the church's corporate worship of God. They need to sing to God. They need to pray to God. They need to be instructed by God. They need to be under the ministry of the Word of God. And so they were there. And beyond this particular verse here in Colossians 3.20, we find in the Bible the example time and time again that children are with the adults 
in times of corporate worship. For the sake of time, let me give you just one example. Hold your spot, if you would, in Colossians 3, and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Again, this is only one example. I could give several others, but we will, for the sake of time, look at just this one example. Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 9. 9 to 13. Here we come to the end of the Pentateuch, the end of the giving of the law, the law of God through Moses to Israel. And so in verse 9 we read, So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years... So think about this. This was to be a standing order, if you will. Every seven years, this is what the nation of Israel was to do. At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. And so every year... Every seven years, rather, the law of God in its entirety was to be read to the entire nation of Israel. Verse 12, he continues, Assemble the people, the men and the women and children, and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Verse 13, their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. As long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. The children were there. They were with the adults as the law of God in its entirety was read to the nation. Now back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. There are certainly times when it is good to have classes that are designed for children and youth. It is good to have a nursery for those little ones that are too wiggly to sit still. We've had five of those in our marriage. The nursery is a ministry to moms who are exceptionally busy. It is a ministry to moms of infants and toddlers to help them from being distracted in the corporate worship service. We love our moms, and we want to give them that opportunity to worship freely and without distraction. But there is a biblical pattern for our children to be with us when we gather for corporate worship. And we see this pattern in the Colossian church as the children participated in the church's corporate worship of God. Now, with these two presuppositions in mind, we now turn our attention to what Paul says directly to the children. And again, the children of this congregation, I want you to pay special attention to this message because this is God's word, especially to you. So look at verse 20 with me. Children, be obedient. Just like Paul's instruction to wives and husbands was very brief, so too is his instruction to children very brief. While many things can and should be said to and about children, 
about their responsibilities, there is one overarching responsibility that children have as they are growing up. What is it? Be obedient. Be obedient. Be obedient to whom? Be obedient to your parents. Just like in the marriage relationship, there is authority and submission to authority, so too in the relationship between children and parents. According to his good and wise design, God calls children to submit to the authority of their parents or whomever else may be raising them. It may be another family member. It may be a grandparent, whoever is the one providing care and raising them. Now, the word obey, the one that Paul uses here, literally means to listen under. So think about that idea, to listen under. The idea is that children are under the authority of their parents, and they express submission to their parents. How? By listening to them with the intent of following their instruction. And please notice, children, that you are to obey both of your parents. Parents is plural. So children don't get to pick and choose which one of the parents they want to obey, the one that's more lenient, perhaps. You are to obey both your dad and your mom. That is God's design. Now let's think more deeply about this idea of obedience to parents And children, you should write this down or have your parents help you to write it down because it is a very crucial thing to to know and to live out. To obey your parents is to do what they say without delay, without arguing, without excuses, and with a happy heart. I'll repeat that. To obey your parents is to do what they say without delay, without arguing, without excuses, and with a happy heart. If your parents have to, do, have to tell you to do something more than once, like two and three and four and five and ten times, that is not obedience. There's a little saying, it goes like this, slow obedience is no obedience. And even if you do what they say right away, but you're not happy about it, and you complain about it, and you grumble in your heart about it, that too is disobedience. Unhappy obedience is no obedience. The word obey is a command, which means that this is something that you must do. It is your responsibility as a young person to obey your parents. What is more, it is a present tense command, meaning that this is something that you are to keep doing as a way of life. It's not something that you can do just on one day of the week, Mondays or Tuesdays. It's not something that you are to do just when you feel like it or when you like what your parents tell you to do. So you can't say, you know, I have obeyed my parents for the last five days in a row. I get the next day off. 
Or you can't say this, you know, I have obeyed my parents ten times in a row. Now I'm going to disobey them. I've earned a break. No, it doesn't work that way. Obedience to parents must be at all times. Now notice what Paul says next. You are to obey your parents in some things. In most things. In all things. And so you are to obey your parents at all times and in all things. And who is your perfect example of a young person who obeyed his parents at all times in all things? The Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, it says that Jesus continued in subjection to his parents. He always obeyed his parents in all things. He is your example. That is a marvelous example. But there is one kind of situation in which you are to disobey your parents. And what is that situation? If they tell you to sin. If they tell you to sin. If your parents say something like this to you, I forbid you from reading your Bible, I forbid you from praying, I forbid you from worshiping God, then you must disobey them because they are telling you to sin against God. If your parents tell you to steal or to lie or to do something that is wrong, you must obey God rather than your parents. But if your parents say something like this, clean up your room, do your work, put up your bike, take a bath, brush your teeth, go to bed, you can't wear those clothes. If your parents tell you something like that, then you must obey without delay, without arguing, without excuses, and with a happy heart. So young people, do you obey your parents in all things? And do you do it without delay, without arguing, without excuses, and with a happy and glad heart? Jim Elliff wrote an article called Guidelines for Children. And in the article, he gives 16 examples of what it means to disrespect your parents and other adults, and I find this very helpful. It's on your sermon notes. Number one, knowingly disobeying. Number two, making fun of them, rolling your eyes or mocking. Number three, not speaking when they greet you. Number four, making threatening statements, rude or hurtful remarks. Number five, yelling for them to come to you when it is not an emergency. Number six, grumbling about decisions they make. Number seven, being ungrateful for something they do for you or give you. Number eight, complaining about what they have given you to eat. I might need to repeat that one. Number nine, talking back. Number ten, speaking in an irreverent way or in anger. Number eleven, saying to your parents or an adult, I'll do it in a minute or just wait. 
Number 12, pushing for something after being told no. 13, treating a discipline lightly. 14, not listening when you are being spoken to. 15, entering into a closed room of an adult without knocking or quietly asking to come in. And then 16, sighing, shrugging the shoulders, or giving a sour look when told to do something. Now, I know the young people of our church never do any of those things, so you're in a great place. There's a story of a child who was told to sit down. The child refused. The child was very obstinate. But after being told several times to sit down, the child finally obeyed. But the child said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. I think we can all relate to that. And so young people, obedience to your parents shouldn't be like that. It's not merely something that you do on the outside, but what you do in the heart. If you were to join the military and go to boot camp, I don't think it would matter to your commanding officer whether or not your obedience to his orders was a matter of the heart, so long as you did what you were told on the outside. But when it comes to God, what you do in your heart is what is most important. And so your attitude toward your parents greatly matters to God, and it should greatly matter to you. I provided on your notes four things that children need to know about their parents. These are good reminders. We won't say a lot about them, but I want us to look at them briefly. Number one, the most important relationship that you have, other than your relationship with God, is with your parents. So do you believe that, young people? It's true. Your relationship with your parents is more important than your relationship with your friends or with any other human being, as long as you are growing up. Number two, it is no accident that you have the parents you have. God didn't make a mistake when he gave you the mom and dad that you have, and so you should thank God and thank God regularly for the parents that you have because they are God's gift to you. Number three, you are not wiser than your parents. Now, I have met some teenagers who think that they are wiser than their parents. I used to be one of those. But you are not wiser than your parents. They are older than you. They are more experienced at life than you. They are wiser than you. And they love you more than anyone else in the world. Therefore, the things they tell you are for your good, even if it doesn't seem like it to you at times. So you need to trust your parents when they tell you to do something because they are wiser than you and they love you. And then number four, because your parents love you so much, you need to understand that when you disobey them, you hurt them. And when you disobey them, you break their heart, which is something that you should never, ever, ever want to do to your parents. You are called to honor your parents. 
Now, I provided a lengthy quote from a Puritan, Richard Baxter. It's lengthy, but it's well worth it. It is really, really rich. And he's writing to young people, to children. Look at what he says. Be sure that you dearly love your parents. Delight to be in their company. Be not like those unnatural children that love the company of their idle playfellows better than their parents. And had rather be abroad about their sports than in their parents' sight. Remember that you have your being from them and come out of their loins. Remember what sorrow you have cost them and what care they are at for your education and provision. And remember how tenderly they have loved you and how much your happiness will make them glad. Remember what love you owe them both by nature and in justice for all their love to you and all that they have done for you. They take your happiness or misery to be one of the greatest parts of the happiness or misery of their own lives. Maybe read that again today with your parents. That would be a great thing to do. Well, that brings us now to the second major heading. Roman numeral 2, God's motivation for children in the latter half of verse 20. And so, children, why is it that you are to obey your parents at all times and in all things? Well, first of all, as we've already noted, because this is the will of God for your life. But second of all, we need to think about the motivation. And what is the greatest motivation that you have to obey your parents? Look at verse 20. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So children, you are to obey your parents because this is what is good for you. Because this is what honors your parents, but ultimately because this is what pleases God. And that is what is most important. The one person that you should desire to please more than any other person is God, without question. So you should want to obey your parents in all things at all times because you want to please God. So young people, let me ask you, and be honest, don't, don't, don't say it out loud, but be honest in your heart. Who do you most want to please in your life? Who is it? What person or what group of people is it? Is it your friends? Is it your peers? Or is it God? Listen carefully. If the answer isn't God then there is something wrong in your heart. There is something seriously wrong in your heart. If the one you want to please most isn't God, listen carefully, then you are going the wrong direction in your life. You are going the wrong way in your life. And you should be very concerned. Adoniram Judson is a hero of mine. He lived about 200 years ago. He was the first person from America to travel overseas to be a missionary in a foreign country. He went to the country of Burma. 
He was raised in a Christian home. His father was a pastor, but in spite of the fact that his parents taught him the Bible and taught him the Bible regularly and well, by the time he was about 19 years old or so, he had lost interest in being a Christian. And he began to run away from God, as many teenagers do. He went to college, and while he was at college, he met a fellow student named Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames was not a Christian. Jacob had a lot of influence on Adoniram, and the two young men became best friends in college. At this time in Adoniram's young life, his goal in life was to be famous. No desire to please God. He wanted to be famous. And in an endeavor to become famous, he was on a trip by himself. And he stayed at a small little village, and he found a local inn where he stayed the night. In the room next door in that inn was a man who was dying. And during the night, Adoniram could hear the groans of that dying man. The next morning, Adoniram asked the landlord about the dying man. And the landlord of the inn said, he is dead. Adoniram was shaken by this. And then he asked, what was his name? The landlord said, Jacob Ames. The young man who had been his best friend in college. Adoniram was so stunned by this news that he couldn't leave the inn for several hours. There was no way he was in the proper state of mind to begin traveling again. And he realized that it wasn't a mere coincidence that he stayed the night at the inn where his best friend had just died. He knew this was God's warning to him. He knew that God was pursuing him. And by grace, shortly thereafter, Adoniram Judson gave his life for the first time to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was genuinely converted, genuinely saved by the grace of God. And his goal in life was no longer to be famous, which is all vanity. His goal in life was simple. How can I most please God? There is a popular lie that has been around for thousands of years, and it goes like this. When you are young, live for yourself and live in sin. And when you get old, then get serious about God. There are two problems with that idea. Number one, remember Jacob Ames. There is no guarantee that you will live long enough to be old. You are not guaranteed to live another day. Listen to me, young people. This day might be your last day on earth. 
I don't know that. Only God knows that. But some people die young. You are not guaranteed a long life. You are not guaranteed that you will live to be old. And that's why I say that is a lie when people say, wait until you're old to get serious about God. Well, there's another problem with that idea. Remember what the Bible says to young people in Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. In the days of your youth. Young people, I warn you that youth is a dangerous time of life. I used to be a youth, and I can attest how dangerous it was In many ways, youth is the best time of life. It is the prime of life. You have health and energy and vigor and all kinds of opportunity to enjoy things. It is a wonderful season of life. But at the same time, youth is filled with spiritual landmines. And if you do not live carefully, you will step on those landmines to your own destruction. When you are young, the temptation to give in to peer pressure and worldliness and pride is perhaps stronger than at any other stage in life. At least that's been my own experience. When you are young, you are especially concerned about your image, about your appearance, what you look like, about what people think about you, the opinions of men. When I was a teenager, I was a slave to the opinions of my peers. It was dreadful. The fear of man is a struggle for all of us, no matter how old we are. But when you are young, it is especially powerful. As a young person, you must especially beware of the lust of the flesh. Everything that you desire in life is not good. You must be aware of the lust of the eyes, Everything that you see and that looks attractive is not good. And you must be especially aware of the pride of life. In love, I warn you, young people, the sinful things that are offered to you by the world are deadly. They are deadly. Sexual sin drunkenness, drugs, rebellion against authority, the love of money, the love of entertainment, and on and on it goes. These things are like poison to your soul. Be wary of them. They might kill you. You must turn away from ungodly things like these But listen carefully, simply turning away from ungodly things, from the things of this world, is not enough to save your soul. Yes, in order to be right with God, you must turn away from the world and from the sin of the world and of even your own hearts. But in order to be saved, listen to me loud and clear, in order for you to be saved, you must turn to Jesus Christ. If you do not turn personally to Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved, and you will not be saved. You, you as an individual, must come to faith in Jesus Christ.
You must receive him as your Savior and as your Lord. Here is what some people say. I need to stop doing all the ungodly things that I love and start doing all the right things that I hate and find boring in order to save my soul. People don't often say it with their mouth, but they say it with their thoughts, with their life. And what I say is no, that that is not what a new creature in Christ looks like. That is not what real conversion looks like. Becoming a Christian is when God changes you on the inside profoundly. It is when you no longer love the sin that you used to love and when the things of God that you used to hate and despise and find boring are now the most thrilling things in your life by far. When a person truly comes to Christ in salvation, he or she wants nothing more than to please God from the heart. And so, young people, I ask you a very direct question, and I do it in love. Do you love this world more than Christ? If you do, then be afraid. Be afraid of where you stand before God. Be afraid that you are not ready to die. If that is you, I plead with you, come to the end of your sin. Ask God to help you to hate your sin, to forsake your sin, and ask God to save you. It was in the summer of 1992, I was in my bedroom all alone. I had been attending Bible study for about a year, reading the Bible for about a year, but at that particular day, I was in my room all by myself, and I cried out to God, and God saved me. And even to this day, sometimes I will drive by that house where I grew up and look at the window of my old bedroom and just marvel that I used to be a kid in that room And God eventually saved me. Young people, cry out to God to save you. And if you do, the Bible promises that God will hear your prayer. And that he will save you by his grace and by his power. So I plead with you, give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the most important thing about you. Well, as we conclude, I want to share a story about a young man who grew up going to church with his parents, but he never committed himself personally to Jesus Christ. He went to college. He eventually graduated from there. He went to law school. He eventually graduated from there. His parents attended the graduation ceremony. It was a very happy time. And then they had had a small family party at home. And when all of the guests and all of the friends had eventually left, the father was there with his son. They were alone. And the father asked his son, Son, you have your degree now. What are your plans? The son said, Well, Dad, I intend to work for a well-known law firm for some time to come. 
The father said, what do you hope to do after that? The young man thought for a moment and he said, well, dad, when I have worked for another lawyer for a while, I intend to set up my own law firm. The father said, and then after that, what are your plans, son? The young man smiled from ear to ear and said, Dad, like you, I hope to marry the girl of my dreams. The father said, "Uh uh-huh. What do you plan to do after that? The son thought for a moment and said, well, I intend to make a lot of money for myself and invest in real estate. The father said to him, and what are your plans after that? The young man thought for a moment and said, I will raise my kids the way you did me, see them go through school, get educated, and establish themselves. And the father said, and after that, what are your thoughts? The son paused for a moment, and he said, well, I guess when I have made my fortune and my kids have grown up, I will retire and enjoy my money. The father said, and after that? The son thought real hard and real long and said, well, I suppose I'll grow old. And then the father said, and after that? After a long, uncomfortable pause, The son finally said, I guess I'll die. And the father then said, and then after that. This conversation between a wise father and his foolish son is a profound reminder of why you exist. Why do you exist, young people? You exist to know God. You exist to find your life and your joy and your satisfaction in God. Our Father, we are sobered by these things. No matter what our age is, we are humbled as we consider these truths. We thank you that you have designed the family the way that you have with parents and children. And we thank you for the great treasure that children are to us. We thank you for giving to us the children that we have and the grandchildren that we have. And we thank you for the parents and the guardians and those who care for children and what a gift they are. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, that children have this one overarching responsibility to obey their parents in all things, because this is what pleases you, O God. Father, we pray for every young person that is here, even those that are too young and too little to understand what we are saying. We pray, O God, that you would show grace to our young ones, 
to our youth. That you would deliver them from the lie that they can find life without you. Father, impress these truths upon their young hearts. Please may you do that. And Father, even as we pray for the young children, I know that there are many adult children that are now outside of the homes of families that are here that are not where they should be spiritually. And so, Father, we pray that right now, wherever they may be, that you would cause them to think about you, that you would bring conviction of sin to them, that you would show them the emptiness of life without you, that you would bring them to a point of despair and yet shine the hope of Jesus Christ upon them and bring them to true and saving faith in Jesus. Father, we beg you, we plead with you that you would do that. It is, it is the, the, the deepest prayer of our hearts regarding our children that they would know you and love you and that we would not only be their parents, but we would be able to be brothers and sisters in Christ. May you make that a reality, we pray. And we pray this in the name of our mighty Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.